Hello and welcome to Nursum Podcast, episode number two. My name is Landon James. I'm an emergency nurse and rural critical care transport nurse. And hello, my name is Monique McLaughlin, and I'm the emergency nurse practitioner in an urban emergency department. And we're coming to you from the province of British Columbia in uh, Vancouver in my kitchen. And so the second kitchen talk today <laughs> is going to be about concussions and the management diagnosis and sort of what the current recommendations are. Um, it really is time for emergency department staff to update themselves on this topic. It's one of those things that we're getting patients coming in knowing more about concussions than we do and it's a bit of an uncomfortable conversation when we're sitting there and they're quoting all of these measurement tools and research articles and we're doing the the nice jazzy hands as we back away and trying to go google it ourselves so we mm -hmm. thought we'd bring you some of the current stuff to the podcast and you sound a little smarter when you're standing next to the patient yeah um, i agree landon i think particularly because there's so much in the news particularly with all these famous sports um, athletes ending up with concussions and being benched and what that means and I think that that has certainly opened up the conversation and we certainly have seen lots of research that looks at a repetitive head injuries and sports and when to come back to play and all of those things so I do think it is timely for us to talk about it because we would like to be informed when we're talking to our patients and and not being the nurse Google um, in order to give them the information that they require. So um, excited to talk about this topic. So we want to acknowledge uh, two organizations before we start. A lot of the material today that we're going to talk about has been pulled from presentations available online from Think First Canada, uh, and their website will be in the show notes. We, who've uh, recently turned into an organization called Parachute Canada, which is a large consortium of injury prevention organizations. Um, they have a lot of very freely available material for focus to physicians, nurses, coaches, families, patients, and you can go online and they give you free reign to take their PowerPoint and go forth and teach it. Mm -hmm. um, so acknowledge them uh, very much for this. So we're going to kind of break it into four sections today. Uh, one, we're going to talk about the background of, of where all these recommendations come from, a bit about the diagnosis of concussion, mm -hmm. uh, the management of concussion, and then what most patients, the first thing out of their mouth, when can I return to play um, or when can I start doing activity again? So a bit about the background. Th these sports medicine people are really smart and they meet every few years, a lot of times revolving around a, an Olympic or Paralympic Games um, uh, meeting, and they talk about what we are going to define concussion as now. What should the return to play look like? And it's actually a, it's a really interesting thing that they've come to a consensus mm -hmm. around how this should look around the world. And so the most recent consensus statement was made in Zurich in November 2012, published in March 2013. Uh, so I've seen it referred to as the Zurich 2012 and the Zurich 2013 consensus statements. Again, totally available online. Just type in consensus statement on concussion management, Zurich. And uh, there you go. The, the definition currently that we're using for concussion is an immediate and temporary alteration of mental functioning due to trauma. Uh, the trauma does not have to be directly to the head and can be due to a whiplash effect on the brain from a blow elsewhere in the body. It's kind of the most simple definition that we're using right now. And uh, it's 
uh, great that we have a definition, it's great that we have these consensus documents. We really want to get these into the emergency setting so that we're able to give our patients information right as they come through the door. So let's talk a little bit about the diagnosis and I'm going to turn it over to you Monique, our nurse practitioner, to talk about these patients. Yeah, this is always a challenging group that come into the emergency department because there's a, you know, a lot of anxiety around head injuries um, and what kind of firm diagnosis I can make, something that they can see on a CT scan, on an x-ray, on blood work that says this is what I have because a lot of the symptoms are very vague really. And so it is difficult sometimes to take the time to explain to patients and their family members why we wouldn't choose to do any radiographic investigation. So concussions or traumatic brain injury, and we'll talk about the terminology in a little bit. Most of those are very clinical diagnosis. You see a patient, they're showing some, they've had a blow to the head or whiplash injury, and they're showing some signs of neurological dysfunction, whether that be headache or um, dizziness, lightheadedness, moodiness, irritability, all of those things. And when we examine them, and we do do a full neurological exam, we find out that really they don't have any kind of focal findings on a neurological exam. Now, how do we decide then when a CT is necessary or not? And certainly we should be very proud in Canada that we do have something called the Canadian CT head rules. And that really determines for us who needs to definitely get a CT scan. It kind of takes a, a little bit of the guesswork out of it. Now, I am not saying that we're not CT scanning somebody who comes in with obvious brain coming out of his ear. That's, pardon the pun, is a no-brainer. That person gets a CT scan. We're talking about minor head injuries and trying to delineate out of that group whether there is a high risk for some kind of bad brain thing or just a medium risk or no risk at all. So in that kind of high risk, with any of these findings, they get a CT scan. So high risk group, GCS less than 15 at two hours after injury. Anybody has an open or depressed skull fracture, any sign of a basal skull fracture, so raccoon eyes, hemotypanum, battle signs, vomiting greater than two episodes. One vomit doesn't include just vomiting greater than or equal to two episodes. And anybody who frankly is greater than 65 years old um, gets a CT scan. If you have amnesia that's greater than 30 minutes um, before the impact, so the impact happens at five o'clock, you don't remember what you did early in the morning, that's much more concerning. And then we look at dangerous mechanisms, pedestrian, occupant, um, ejected, fall from an elevation, all those people get a CT. Now the interesting thing is that in a couple, couple of years ago, there was a huge study looking at pediatrics because this Canadian CT head rule does not cover anybody younger than 16 years of age. Well, those are the kids who are out there playing on their bicycles, hitting their head. And how do we determine then they shouldn't get a CT scan or not? And you have very anxious parents. And so trying to explain to them, these are the objective findings. So there was a huge study, it was in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, comparing all these kids who got CT scans and they didn't actually find any of them having poor outcomes and yet over a 10 year period there was a 1% increase of brain tumors in that group of people. 
So it really behooves us as healthcare professionals to really come up with a rule that is full enough or robust enough to capture all those critical interventions, but still sensitive enough that we're not CTing every single person that's out there. So, you know, for your interest, there are three kind of studies or rules out there that haven't totally been validated. And I would certainly recommend that you kind of go online and we'll try to have some um, articles on our website so that you can pull up to them. And one of them is the catch rule, which is a Canadian thing that says a Canadian assessment of tomography for childhood head injuries. And frankly, the you know, if I simplify it, it's about uh, four kind of different things. So they call it wigs. So somebody with worsening headaches, irritability on exam, GCS less than 15 at two hours, and then a suspected open or depressed skull fracture, they should all get CT scans. The other group or the other two rules are coming from the UK and the US, respectively. And the UK one is called CHALICE, Children's Head Injury Algorithm for Prediction of Clinical Events. And PKERN is from the US and it's the Pediatric Emergency Care Applied Research Network. So all of them are trying to come up with some rules because at the end of the day, concussion is a clinical diagnosis and we shouldn't be exposing people to radiation unnecessarily. So we have to be smarter at figuring it out and smarter really at giving patients informed decision about why and when we do CT scans. So it takes a little bit more time to explain why I'm not doing the test or really the way I explain it is I'm not concerned. I don't think there's blood in there because that's what the CT is to look for. It won't show signs of a concussion. It's looking for blood. And so I often will say, I'm not concerned there's blood in there because of these things and therefore that's why you don't need a CT. So I'm going to let that go back to you then. Perfect. Um, that's, that's really helpful considering a large majority of our facilities mm-hmm. don't have CT scanners, period. And, and nurses may be standing there and in the back of their mind thinking, had we been at a different hospital, this person may have received a CT scan and now I'm worried about sending them home because we haven't done what we need to do. Right. And, and this should actually make us feel fairly comfortable that if they, if they meet this criteria, they wouldn't have had a CT scan even at the big house exactly. hospital somewhere. So yes. that's great. So a little bit more of, of recognition as well. Um, there's a great pocket concussion recognition tool that is made to be used on the field of play by coaches and, and other folks that are there. And we'll have a link to that on the show notes. And, and really there's a lot of focus in these consensus documents around recognize that a concussion may be present. No point in not recognizing it because the person mm-hmm. will continue to play and then we might end up with something worse. And the the big message with concussion management on the field of play is if they get positive in any of these tools, there's a few out there, they must stop play right away and they do not return to play that day. That's a that's a, a strong statement from these experts in concussion management. Because I know when I was a child, you just got dusted off and get back in there, Bobby, and, and it didn't necessarily, uh, that wasn't necessarily the best thing to do. So a bit about management. I know that when I started emergency nursing, the management of someone who'd been bonked on the head was you had someone wake them up every two to three hours and make Mm -hmm. sure that they weren't dead yet. And uh, that was it. Right. And we've definitely changed that. The current management is way more involved uh, (laughs) than it used to be. The big one, as I have already alluded to, is remove from the current game, from the current activity. Mm -hmm. they, they, They are smart in saying, yeah, it could be a bleed, although it probably isn't. So don't leave them alone. 
No, yeah. we don't want people wandering out into traffic who are starting to have little symptoms of some confusion around a bleed in their brain. Don't give them any medications because we don't want to sedate them and maybe be masking something else. They have to be evaluated by a physician or a nurse practitioner. It's a, a good recommendation. And no return to play until they're managed. The other big thing that came out of a lot of these things over the last few years is brain rest. And we think of, I hurt myself playing soccer, so I shouldn't play soccer anymore. And, and brain rest is actually a, a big thing, and especially with children. A lot of the, the management of this may be they don't even go to school for a few days because mm-hmm. they're really not supposed to be using their brain. And you know, firing neurons in the brain, whether you're solving a math problem or telling your legs to move, are still firing neurons in the brain and, and the brain needs rest at this point. It's kind of interesting, right? Because I do think that the brain is kind of like the last unknown frontier because there's so much of it we don't understand. And I think when we're looking at, I love that you're talking about remove from the current game because I do see, and we certainly are seeing in the news, people who are going back too soon and having these repetitive head injuries and these poor outcomes that um, athletes are having on their psyche and also on their brain function itself and many of them actually ending up with depression, ending up with suicide. And so it's very interesting for us to look at, we need to rest our brain, we need to figure out what we're doing wrong here. And while we don't understand it, I think the recognition is that the brain does need rest. And so I'm all for getting them out of play and then having some guidelines as to when they should return to play. And I think you're going to talk about that right now, aren't you? Yeah, it's a great segue. So that is the most common question we face is when do I get to do blank again and we're bad at answering that in my observations in in most emergency departments there's actually some really great resources out there about when you return to play the the most commonly used one is the six-step return to activity and the big thing with this with using this I'll kind of go through it there'll be links in the show notes to it is if you fail any of the steps and failing is a return of any sign or symptom so as much as a little bit of a headache or a Mm -hmm. little dizziness or just trouble finding the right words for things you go all the way back to step one so the logical question what is step one brain rest not doing anything so step one is you do nothing until the symptoms have resolved then your once your symptoms have resolved you can move to step two which is light aerobic exercise you're not doing your sport or activity again you're just the goal of the purpose of step two is increase your heart rate and you shouldn't have a return of any symptoms with that if you can do that and and it's not do that for five minutes and move to step three it's do that for a few days make sure that you don't have any return of symptoms then you get to move to step three which is some sport specific activities so if you were hockey player now you can get on to skating again Mm -hmm. with your stick just skating around but there's no jarring no contact in this phase this is uh, just to add the movement of the sport back Mm -hmm. into your activity again any symptoms back to step one which is do nothing Step four is where you can start doing some drills without body contact. So maybe skating up and down the rink with a puck, trying to shoot it into the net, playing a little bit of a a game amongst your teammates. Again, no physical contact at this point. This is where you're adding cognition. You're you're adding the thinking around sport Mm -hmm. with the movement back into your specific sport. 
Step four to five is the, is the big leap. This is where you're beginning your drills or you're playing your sport again with contact if it's mm-hmm. a contact sport. And that's often where a lot of people regress back into step one if they're going to. And, and a lot of the recommendations is step four to five. All of this should be managed by a physician or NP throughout. Mm-hmm. But step four to five is the one where you're taking a big leap. Let's mm-hmm. go see the doc or the NP again and talk about moving from step four to step five. Make sure there's been no symptoms. Mm-hmm. And these tools actually talk about symptoms and rating symptoms in it as well, which you'll see if you, uh, if you download them. So that's the purpose of step five really is to restore confidence a lot, mm-hmm. but also to add that functional component to right. the sport. And then step six is return to full play. And uh, again, you always return to step one if you fail at every level. So you get all the way to step five and you start getting headaches again all the way back to step one and you progress step two three four five again so the the debilitating part of these injuries is is one there's there's nothing to see there's nothing to go get right and they're really long recoveries and with a group of people who tend to be very go-getter action-oriented and now some of these people taking months to return even to a step three or four ability in their activity and getting completely deflated every time they're having to return to step one it's it's really sad um, because it's such a non-visual injury Mm -hmm. and people who were high functioning now really not even able to remember certain things at times and, and the frustration that gives them. Absolutely. And I think actually what you've said is very clear too. And, you know, while you were talking, I was just thinking about, first of all, you can't actually predict how long it's going to take. No, not at all. Uh, because you really do have to listen to your body and to your mind. And so having that insight to say, okay, this is okay. I have to take it slow. And I, you know, there was a lot of criticism, I think, uh, with some of the hockey players taking over a year. And how is this possible? But I think they're starting to recognize if we go back too soon, I'm going to push myself back even further because I haven't followed this particular step-by-step process. The other thing that worries me sometimes is maybe the pressure that uh, maybe coaches or parents put on children and maybe even kids for themselves because they really want to be playing the championship game. And so having to try to convince them that it is short-term pain for long-term gain, I think is really important. And so trying to do that education piece for parents their coaches, and for the kids who are really desperate to get back out onto the field and telling them this is actually a bad thing and maybe giving them Sidney Crosby's story and letting them see that it's it's okay to sometimes be off for a length of time because it's important that you look after yourself so that you can play for a long, long, long time as opposed to this being a career-stopping injury. That's great. So that's probably good for this session. Let's... Uh brief little summary Mm -hmm. go online and look at those consensus statements defining some of these terms and some of these tools to use diagnosis go online again and look at some of these decision making tools and have the conversation in your practice area with your physicians and your nurse practitioners about uh, whether they use these which ones they use it really allows us as nurses to become part of that team when we can go to the family and have a conversation with the patient and their family around a tool that the physician Mm -hmm. has just gone in and talked to them about. It makes us look like we're all talking to each other and on the same page. Absolutely. Remember the management, big one, stop the activity Mm -hmm. and return to play. Download some of those tools, take them to your uh, environment. I can guarantee you that in most of your minor sports associations, they already have these tools, they're using them, and 
we're the ones behind the eight ball when the family brings up, oh, so do you guys recommend using the SCAT 3 tool for return to play decisions? And we give the blank stare, jazzy hands, back away yeah. while we go ask Dr. Google what they're talking about. Absolutely. And I probably would add a couple more things. I think that when we're talking about concussions, for me, the three most important things really are reassuring. Reassuring the patient and their family that the symptoms they're having, even though worrisome, aren't of a worrisome injury that requires some type of surgical intervention or some Good diagnostic. Point. So reassurance is huge. Second is education, which is what you've been talking about, is educating them with the signs and symptoms that they should be looking for and also when to go back to play. What are the steps that they need? And then the third one is the red flags. What are things that should concern them and when should they come back uh, to seek more medical information or attention? So very exciting. And it's uh, certainly something that you and I are both very passionate about. So um, great. Looking... And so in closing, I just want to re-acknowledge, um, go to Parachute and Think First websites. The BC Injury Prevention and Research Unit has some great resources as well. They're quite tied into Parachute and Think First the sporting community has definitely led this over the last, you know, 10 years, and uh, they really need to be acknowledged for that, coming around on, um, on coming to some consensus statements that in healthcare, it's very rare that we come to such large worldwide consensus on things. And we'll throw some more resources into the show notes. So thank you for listening to the Nursing Podcast. For past episodes and to comment on this episode, please visit our website at nursum.org. That's N-U-R-S-E-M dot O-R-G. You can follow us on Twitter at NursumCast and also find us on Facebook at Nursum Podcast. We look forward to your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Remember... Before incorporating anything new into your work, ensure you are supported by your own scope of practice, workplace policies, and your own knowledge and comfort. The Nursum Podcast is brought to you by PRN Education, www.prneducation.ca.